Our reading this morning is from Habakkuk chapter 1 and chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the Lord is paralyzed. The Lord, sorry, the law is paralyzed, and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous, so that justice is perverted. Look at the nations and watch, and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize the dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honour. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own strength is their God. O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O Rock, you have ordained them to punish Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what I answer I am to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. 
Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. Thank you, Tom, and the worship group for leading us in our worship so far. Thank you, Jean, for bringing us that quite lengthy reading. Those of you who have been around church for the last few weeks will know that we are looking at this subject of prayer, how we can develop a praying culture as a church, not become a church who go to more prayer meetings or who stand up at the front and pray longer prayers with nice, long, complicated words in, but a people to whom prayer becomes a part of our lifestyle. As soon as we started looking at this subject of prayer, a subject which is a good and positive subject, we realised there are a number of difficult questions that arise. Last week, Paul looked at the subject, doesn't God care about my pain? And I would urge you to go online and listen to what Paul said as he talked about the story of Hannah and her troubles. This morning, we are looking at another difficult subject, another difficult question that arises when we think about prayer. Why doesn't God answer my prayer? When I told my wife that that's what we would be looking at, she said, well, that's something that all of us are affected by. All of us, however long we've been Christians for, we can look back on times when God has answered our prayers, but we can also look back on times when it feels as if God has been silent towards us. Many of us will feel that prayer generally goes unanswered. Adrian Plass had this great expression. He said, sometimes prayer is like shouting into an empty bucket. I wonder if you've ever felt that. But you know, for many of us, there will be a prayer that we've come thinking about this morning a particular prayer that has occupied your mind. Maybe you prayed that you would come first in the church quiz and you came last. It doesn't matter, Mandy. (laughs) Hannah said we should pray for boldness. Roger and I have both prayed for boldness and God answered our prayers. (laughs) But maybe there is a prayer that has occupied your mind for months or years or maybe even decades, maybe a prayer for healing, a prayer for a member of your family, maybe a prayer for a restoration of a relationship, maybe a son or a daughter that you've not seen for many years. And you've prayed that God would bring about a restoration of that relationship. And the years have gone by and nothing's happened. Maybe you've prayed for someone in your family or a work colleague to become a Christian. And you cannot understand why God doesn't answer your prayer. My father used to say to me, never start off with an apology. So I'm not going to start with an apology. But I'm going to give a qualification or perhaps a warning If you've come to church this morning and you've looked at the topic we're going to be covering and you have come this morning looking for an easy answer, 
perhaps some sort of theological or doctrinal viewpoint, perhaps some uh, some theological formula that you can apply to your prayer, some promise from scripture you can use to sort of twist the arm of God, you're most likely going to go home disappointed. There are people who come up with ideas and theological and doctrinal formula that we can apply to prayer to get what we want out of our prayer life. They are, on the whole, wrong. They are, at best, very patronising. And at worst, they are hurtful and offensive and deeply damaging. But in the midst of what we perceive as silence from heaven, I do believe this firmly. God still continues to speak to us. Although sometimes it's hard to discern his voice. Like Elijah who wanted to hear from God and he thought he would hear from God in the storm. And then he thought he would hear from God in the earthquake and then in the fire. And when it came to, he heard from God in that still small voice. Sometimes we have to quieten the sound of the world. We have to quieten the sound of ourselves and listen to what God is saying in the silence. When God doesn't answer our prayers, what is it that he's saying to us? Before we answer that question, I think it's worth acknowledging that we are in a spiritual battle And when we perceive that heaven is silent, when we perceive that God is not speaking to us, there is another one who loves to speak into that silence. When we feel we're not hearing from God, Satan loves to fill that silence with his lies. Jean read to us from the the, uh, first chapter of Habakkuk. And as we think very briefly about that first chapter, I want us to look at three lies that Satan would fill what we perceive as silence with. The first lie is this, God doesn't care about you. Maybe God hasn't answered our prayer because we think we're not good enough. Maybe because in the past we've made some sort of mistake, we've made some misjudgment, we've done something that we feel God doesn't approve of and he holds it against us. Maybe you've read something like that passage from James chapter 5 which says, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And you say, I've prayed and God hasn't answered my prayer, it's been neither powerful nor effective. Therefore, I'm not righteous enough. I'm not good enough in God's eyes to have my prayer answered. Satan loves to think, make us think that we are not good enough for God. That God will save and listen to and answer the prayers of everybody else, but not to us. Because of the way we are, because of the thing we've done, because of that skeleton in the cupboard. Habakkuk asked the question, how long, O Lord? This was a man who had clearly been praying for a long, long time. And yet his prayers had not only gone unanswered, 
But as far as he was concerned, God wasn't even listening to his prayers. How long must I call for help, but you do not even listen to me? Habakkuk considered he was asking for the right sort of things. Habakkuk's prayer wasn't a selfish prayer. It wasn't a prayer that he would win the lottery or have a nice big house and a nice car. This was a prayer for God's people to obey God's law. This was a prayer against injustice in violence and, and violence. This was a prayer that the righteous would be liberated from those who hem them in. And yet, says Habakkuk, God, you're not even listening. But when God did answer Habakkuk's prayer, he made it very clear that he does listen and he does answer and he is in control. Look at the nations and watch. Be utterly amazed for I am going to do something in your days you would not believe even if you were told. But you know Habakkuk wasn't quite so convinced once God told him what he had in mind which leads us on to the second lie. God doesn't know what he's doing. God prayed, uh, Habakkuk prayed against injustice and violence and uh, the, um, the way that the nation had become wayward and abandoned God's law. And God says, I'm going to answer your prayers, Habakkuk. But God's answer to Habakkuk's prayer turns out to be less than ideal, at least as far as Habakkuk was concerned. God says, I'm going to bring down on your nation the overwhelming might of the Babylonians, uh, a nation that Habakkuk knew and that God admitted were a feared and dreaded people. They were a law unto themselves. And so Habakkuk once again complains to God, not this time that he hasn't answered his prayer, but that now God has answered his prayer. God clearly has no idea what he's doing. Habakkuk likens the impending Babylonians to a fishing trawler that throw out a net and everything that gets caught in that net gets dragged up. And so Habakkuk says, well, look, you know, there's righteous people in Israel as well as the unrighteous. And you're going to send down a nation and you're just going to punish all of us. We're all going to make feel that life is a lot worse. God, you don't know what you're doing. But then something changes. The beginning of chapter one is very different from the beginning of chapter two. The beginning of chapter one is almost a sense of Habakkuk wagging an accusing finger at God. How long, O oh Lord, must I cry out to you? But having complained that when God answers his prayer, he doesn't like the answer, he then changes his mind. And he says at the beginning of chapter two, I will stand at my watch. I will station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me. Habakkuk's third response to God stands out in stark contrast to the first two. 
And it also stands in stark contrast to what I would say is the third lie that Satan loves to whisper into the silence. God is not capable of solving your problem. So far we've seen that Habakkuk either thought that God wasn't interested in his prayer or that God's answer to his prayer was wrong. But now he likens himself to a watchman who stands on the city ramparts, who stands on the city walls and watches and waits. There's an interesting uh, uh, um, analogy to a watchman in Psalm 130, uh, where David says, this is one of the Psalms of Ascent, I wait for the Lord. Like Habakkuk, he says, my soul waits and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. This gives us an interesting insight into the life of a watchman. A watchman's placed on the city wall at night because it's at night that bad people will come and try and attack, attack the city while everyone's asleep and it's the job of the watchman to look out for those people. But more than looking out from an attacker who may or quite possibly may not come, the watchman waits for the morning because that's when he can go home and go to bed. The watchman waits for the morning. You know, the attacker may or may not come, but the watchman knows this. The morning will come. So the watchman waits expectantly. Not wondering if, but wondering when. Habakkuk says, I stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to say what he will say to me, not wondering if God will answer his prayer, but wondering when and how. He waits expectantly. God doesn't know, uh, Habakkuk doesn't know how God is going to work things out, but he knows that eventually an answer is going to come. And I would like to suggest this, that Habakkuk Learned he needed to stop talking and start listening. What then is God saying to us in the silence when we perceive that God doesn't answer our prayers? What things could God be saying to us? And I've got three things I want to suggest that it may be that we need to take on board when we feel God isn't answering our prayers. First of all, I believe God wants us to be honest. Habakkuk, in uh, chapter chapter 1, verse 2, was nothing if not honest as he railed out to God. There is no point lying about how we feel when God doesn't answer our prayers to God. He knows how we feel. We might as well be honest with him. But we also need to be honest with each other. After my mother died, I continued getting some of her mail. And one of the things I used to receive every now and again was a little missionary report from this fairly obscure missionary organisation. And across the top of it, it always had something like victory report. Hear stories of God's blessings, amazing miracles happening. And, you know, it wore a little bit thin after a while. 
Sometimes we need to be honest about the good stuff, and that's why we have celebrations as a church, to celebrate the good stuff that God is doing. Sometimes we need to be honest about the not-so-good stuff. One of the things I love reading is um, the emails we get from Jack and Claire. Jack and Claire are a couple uh, that we support along with their three children out in Chad. And one of the fantastic things is that sometimes Jack is honest about the fact that actually life is really tough doing what God has called them to do in a difficult part of the world. And you know, that is really refreshing. And I believe it's really healthy that we are honest with each other. After the service, we're going to be having some time of prayer. There will be members of the prayer team who will come and pray with you if you want that, as we do every Sunday. Maybe you've had a prayer in your heart that you've prayed for many years, and you've never shared that concern, that prayer, that desire with anybody else. Maybe this morning is the time that you should share that with someone else, with another Christian. We would love to pray that over with you. The second thing I think God wants to say to us is he wants to teach us patience. Patience is difficult, isn't it? Have you ever prayed for patience? Lord, give me patience and give it to me now. (laughs) Psalm uh, Psalm 32 verse 9 says, do not be like the horse or the mule. You know, I always used to think that was strange because I always thought, well, horses and mules are completely different animals. But I think that's the point. The horse rushes ahead. It wants to run. It wants to race. The mule sits on its backside and won't move. The Bible says, don't be like the horse and don't be like the mule. God has his timing. God wants to do things in particular places, at particular times, at particular junctures in our life. We mustn't race ahead and we mustn't sit on our backside and refuse to be moved. Often our prayers are based on us wanting to do quickly, now, what God wants to do slowly and in the future. Often we are tempted to take shortcuts because we think a shortcut will cost us less, personally. But you know the thing with shortcuts is they can end up taking an awfully long time. Moses, a character I love in the Old Testament, spent 40 long years in the palace of the Pharaoh preparing to do God's work. And he thought he knew how he was going to do it. And he thought he could do it there and then after 40 long years of waiting. But you know what? God had another 40 years of preparation for him, wandering around in the desert looking after his father-in-law's sheep. But you know, those 80 years, 40 years in the palace of the Pharaoh, 40 years in the desert talking to sheep, they were crucial times of preparation. Because when God wanted Moses to act, he was going to have him go back to the palace of the Pharaoh and talk in Pharaoh-type palace sort of language, saying Pharaoh-type palace sort of stuff. And then he was going to have him lead his people out into the desert and spend 40 years leading God's people round a desert, a barren desert. And God's people were nothing if not like sheep that he had also herded round the desert. There's an interesting other thing that uh, 
we could deduce from Moses' time of preparation. The Bible is brought to us through the word, through the Holy Spirit, but it is brought to us by human writers. There is one writer who wrote more than anything else, more of the Bible than anybody else. Who do you think that was? It was Moses. If Moses had been a slave, how would he have learned to write? How would he have learned skills of literature? And yet God had him grow up for 40 years in a palace, knowing that his people were suffering and that he couldn't do anything about it, but absorbing a culture of literacy, of learning, of education, of government, of leadership, of politics. All that time, Moses sat there doing nothing, and yet God was teaching and preparing him. God wants to teach us patience to prepare us. Finally, God wants to teach us faith. God wants to teach us to trust in his plans and purposes, not trusting in our own ways and our means, not following the world's agenda, not living by explanations, but he wants us to live by faith. You know, Habakkuk saw and railed out against to God against what he perceived as unrighteousness in the nation. And he wanted to be able to pray to God that God would somehow punish the unrighteous and give the righteous vindication. But what God actually says to Habakkuk at the end is, you know, the righteous will live by faith. Righteous comes not by praying for God to punish the unrighteous. Righteousness comes through faith, through trusting God and not our own ways and means. God answering or not answering our prayers should not be seen as a measure of our faith. We shouldn't be tempted to think that God has answered this prayer, therefore I've got lots of faith and God has rewarded me. And we shouldn't be tempted to think God hasn't answered that prayer because I haven't got enough faith and I'm a failure as a Christian. But I do think that maybe it is a measure of how much we are prepared to let God deal with our prayers. Take it to the Lord in prayer, we say. And we're very good at that. And then we're very good at taking it back again. Having faith in God doesn't just mean believing that God can answer our prayer. And it doesn't even mean believing that God will answer a prayer. It means leaving God to answer our prayers in his way and in his time. It means admitting that we can't deal with the problems that we're praying about and letting God get on with it. You know, this was the root of Moses' problem. This was the reason Moses ended up spending another 40 years in the desert. You know the story? Moses was sat there in the Pharaoh's palace. He hears about the plight of his own people, of God's people, being put to slavery and bondage by the Egyptians. And the Bible tells us one day he goes out to be with his own people and watch them at their hard labour. 
What did he expect to see? I think he expected to see an Egyptian beating and abusing an Israelite. He goes out and he is not disappointed. And Moses thinks, right, I am resolved to do something about this problem. I'm going to sort it. And so he kills the Egyptian. Whether or not he thought he was going to pick off the Egyptians one by one and nobody would notice, I'm not sure. But the reality is, the Bible tells us, he kills the Egyptian and he buries the body in the sand. Moses is resolved to do something about what he sees as a searing injustice against God's people in his own way and in his own time, i.e. now. And the next day, Moses discovers he hasn't got away with it. And he goes out, he sees two of his own people arguing. And one of them says, when Moses tries to intervene, oh, are you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Go. Moses can't go back to the Pharaoh. He can't go back to the palace. And so he has to run away to the desert. And the Bible tells us he stayed there until that Pharaoh had died. And there was a new Pharaoh on the, phone, on, on the throne. Moses decided to deal with the problem in his own way and at his own time. He was reacting to a situation that he thought only he could solve. God instead has Moses sit in the desert for 40 years while he teaches Moses patience and faith. Trust in me, do things in my way, do things in my time. There was nothing wrong with Moses' motivation. There was nothing wrong in Moses wanting to see God's people released from slavery. But there was everything wrong with the way he went about it. The way he refused to pray and hand the problem over to God. But you know, that does take humility. It takes humility. It is one thing to pray for a solution to a problem. It is another thing altogether to admit that we don't have the answer. How often we pray, but we expect God to answer the prayer in our way, because we know the answer God should be giving. Jesus' disciples asked him, Lord, how should we pray? And rather than giving him them some magic formula of words, although that's what some people have turned the Lord's Prayer into, he actually gave them a way to think about prayer. He said, you need to pray like this. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How often when we pray, we reverse that and we pray, my will be done in heaven like I like to see it done on earth. Thank you very much. In 1 Peter chapter 5, there's some lovely words of comfort and reassurance. I remember these words being on a sort of a calligraphy framed text in my parents' bedroom. Cast your cares on him, for he cares for you. That's a, a passage that we love to remember and quote. But you know there's a bit that comes before it, which is not quite so easy. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hands. You know what that means? That means saying to God, God, my hands are puny. 
your hands are mighty. I don't have the resources. I don't have the skill. I don't have the understanding. I don't see the beginning from the end like you do. And my ways are not your ways. And I'm going to humble myself and admit that I have this problem and I don't have the answer. And I don't know what the answer should be. And I don't know when the answer should come. But I know that your hands are mighty. And your ways are far higher than my ways. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time, and then you can cast all your cares on him, because not only are his hands mighty, but he cares for you. I don't know what prayers this morning you have prayed that you've not received an answer to. You know. You've probably lain awake at three o'clock in the morning, chewing them over and praying them once again. But I do know this. God is mighty. God is able. And if we let him, he will care for us. Paul says to the Romans, if God be for us, who can stand against us? And whatever prayer you perceive that God has or hasn't answered, I know this, God is for you. God is for you in this, that 2,000 years ago he sent his son to walk the earth and teach us that there is a better way And he hung on a cross and he died. In response to a prayer from us, Lord, would you send your son to die for my sins? That would be amazing if we prayed that prayer and God answered it. But you know, that's not how it was. Because Paul says, while we were still sinners, while we were ungodly, while we were still far off from God, God answered the prayer that we hadn't prayed. He said, because at that time, Christ died for the ungodly. And there is one prayer that God would always answer. And that is the prayer that says, God, I've made a mess of my life. I haven't trusted you. I haven't waited for your timings. I haven't left things up to you. I haven't exercised faith and patience. But I recognise that actually your ways are best. And that only in you can I find true happiness and true peace. And that is a prayer that was answered 2,000 years ago. As the Son of God hung on a cross and died for each and every one of us. Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? God gave his own son to die for us. What is he going to hold back from us? God has not our best in mind for us, but he has his best. At his time and in his way, for each and every one of us. If only we pray and leave the answers to God. Let's bow our heads and pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for people like Habakkuk who were honest when they said, how long, O Lord, before you answer me? Lord, we thank you that your word is full of promises to us. Promises that are good and trustworthy and true. We thank you that you have promised that to each and every one of us who want a real and living relationship with you, the door is open. We thank you that whatever we've done, there is a way back to you. That each and every one of us, you welcome with open and loving arms. Heavenly Father, we admit that it's difficult when we don't understand your ways. When we look at our lives and the life going on around us and all we see is a mess. But we thank you that within that mess, you see a plan and a purpose. We thank you that you want your very best for us. We thank you that you are not against us. You are not a begrudging God. You are not a God who gives us what we deserve. But you are a God who is for us. And that you love each and every one of us. We thank you that we can cast our cares on you because you care for us. Father, I pray this morning for anyone who has prayed a prayer that they see as being gone unanswered. For years or decades even. I pray that this morning you would be so real to that one. And they they would be so aware of your hand on their life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.